So in, in uh, some of the poems that we read when we had our poetry reading this morning, um, the, the theme was on the diversity of these women practitioners and how the Terigata functions uh, somewhat like a big tent, a big welcoming tent that you know, anybody can, can practice in. And it doesn't matter you know, if you're rich or poor or if you're a Brahmin or a slave or a man or a woman or you're insane or you're completely debilitated by grief, everybody's really welcome. Um, there is something uh, also interesting. Um, going back to what I said about how I was looking at the Terigata from a feminist um, angle, one of the things that, that feminist critics do is uh, look at whether the text imposes um, a binary concept of uh, gender. And I was amazed to find in one of the poems of the Terigata, the one by Isi Dasi, that she recounts, um, she, she had a, a very unhappy life with three uh, successive husbands who all rejected her, even though she was doing everything she could to be a good wife. And she was telling this story to her friend and then she goes into, this is one of the later uh, poems, she goes into um, the karmic uh, backstory of why she has such bad luck with her, all of her husbands. And she said that she had been born um, to a slave in the street as neither male nor female. So she was, she was an intersex person at one point in, in, her, in a previous life. So I think this is very rare to hear anything, anything like that in a canonical text uh, of any religion. You know? So I thought that was very interesting that the Terigata even comes up with you know, at least one line that opens the door to uh, gender diversity beyond uh, man and woman. Yeah, me neither. So um, I'll share with you a little bit um, more from my uh, thesis on the, the Dharma aspects of the Terigata. So um, so another one of these questions of uh, feminist criticism is, does the text uh, support the notions of patriarchy or does it undermine them? And I think we, we really do see in the Terigata that it uh, completely undermines the patriarchal system of the time. All of these women escape from it and they not only escape but they become completely free uh, on their, with their, their own practice. And so um, the text as a whole uh, depicts these women as completely free of all these patriarchal constraints, uh, which is quite remarkable because it was sort of a golden time. Before that, you know, women were very subjugated, and then after that, the, you know, the, the men took over the Theravada hierarchy, and it started getting more and more uh, unfriendly to women. But uh, th the time of the Buddha and shortly afterwards was was a, a really nice time uh, for women, especially. Uh, 
uh, in the Buddhist culture. You know, it wasn't obviously wasn't the same in the in the Vedic culture. So some of these um, Terries were viewed as heroes since they were going against uh, the social norms of their time. Um, and some of them were uh, uh, persevering in the face of despair uh, and uh, going mad completely and then uh, taming their minds like Kisa Gotami. Um, some of them practiced wholeheartedly while they were dealing with rejection like Isidasi was or poverty. Uh, there's one nun uh, who um, was living as a beggar on the street and uh, she had been wandering around for seven years like that and and often didn't have enough to eat and she had no place to sleep. She slept on trash heaps and and she was pretty tired of her homeless lifestyle. And then she saw a nun with a begging bowl begging for alms and people giving her food and she thought, hmm, this looks like a pretty good gig. <laughs> <laughs> So it may have not been the most noble of aspirations for wanting to join the monastic order, but it, she joined because she was so poor. And so she asked the nun if, if it would be possible, uh, and the nun accepted her. And then, and then she became, um, you know, a true practitioner and eventually an arahant. So... What was her name? Oh, I'm, I, I can't remember her name right now. I, I'll, I'll let you know if it comes to me. Um, and, and so speaking of heroes, one of the um, Terries is actually named Vera, and Vera uh, means courage. So uh, it's a short poem. I'll read it to you. And, and again, there are a lot of uh, plays on words with the names of the Terries. So uh, her name meaning hero. And the poem is one of these one-liners, one one-verse poems where the Buddha uh, speaks it and then she, um, it becomes her own. Vera, with heroic qualities, you are a nun with faculties developed. Having conquered Mara and his army, bear your body, it will be the last. So, this little lady conquers Mara and a whole army of... Maras. Uh, and he praises her firm mental states for having uh, conquered Mara uh, and his mount. Sometimes the armies is translated as mount. Um, and there's, there are a number of other nuns that are uh, specifically uh, referred to as heroes. And we, we can sense the, the heroism uh, of these Terries when they're called conquerors. Uh, they conquer ignorance, and that's when we hear that stock phrase that the, the mass of darkness is split open. So that means they've, they've conquered ignorance. They conquer difficult, unsubmissive minds. So all the, the Terries who struggle with a wild mind not being able to concentrate. Um, and they conquer grief and the asavas. And elsewhere in the Pali Canon, women are often dismissed as incapable. But the women portrayed in the Terigata are depicted as very dedicated practitioners, meeting adversity with courage, 
and defeating temptations with lucid insight. So uh, from my perspective, the Terigata does offer a very convincing answer from a canonical Theravada text to any question about a woman's ability to reach the highest Buddhist goal. So here, here's a fun poem um, where Soma, uh, her poem begins with a challenge from Mara. And he's insulting her because since she's a woman, she can't be very intelligent. Um, but she's completely confident of her realization and she doesn't miss a beat. Uh, he, he, um, he says, no uh, woman can uh, attain the Buddhist goal because of her two-finger intelligence. And she says back, what harm could the woman's state do to us when the mind is well concentrated, when knowledge exists for someone rightly having insight into the doctrine? Everywhere, enjoyment of pleasure is defeated. The mass of darkness is torn asunder. In this way, no, evil one, you are defeated, death. And so, uh, according to the commentary, um, Dhammapala says that this two-finger intelligence, uh, i.e. inferior wisdom, was um, that girls starting at the age of seven or eight, they were always cooking boiled rice. And to know if the rice was done, they'd take some out and press it between their fingers, and then they'd know if it was done or not. And this really annoys me of Dhammapala. He says, while this type of experiential knowledge that Mara identifies as feminine and corresponding um, to body language is, is dismissed as inferior and inadequate for gaining Nibbana. But I would argue just the opposite, that when applied with the concentrated mind, this is exactly what the Buddha refers to in seeing things as they are, one of the preconditions for realizing abiding peace. So the wisdom of knowing when the rice is done by touching it with your fingers is exactly the kind of insight we need to practice. And it's an, an excellent um, example. So now I'll, I'd like to read you one of my very favorite uh, poems, the one by uh, Patachara. Because... Um, this is really a, a fantastic example of how this experiential knowledge functions as a catalyst for Nibbana. Uh, so, you know, Patachara was um, a great teacher. And here's uh, her poem about her awakening. Plowing fields with plows, sowing seeds in the ground, taking care of children and wife. A young man gains wealth. Why is it that I, thorough in virtue, doing the Buddha's instruction, not lazy or proud, have not attained Nibbana? Washing my feet, I poured water. I watched the water flow from the feet onto the dry ground. Then my mind settled like a horse in a lovely stall. Taking a lamp, I entered my hut, looking to sleep 
I sat down on the bed. Taking a needle, I pulled out the wick, and as the light went out, the mind was liberated. So that's a beautiful example of this experiential knowledge as the catalyst for awakening. Um, this, I'm, I'm reading from Gill's, uh, I, I think I put it, I think it's in there somewhere. I don't know wh- which one it's on, but it's in there somewhere. Yeah. Okay, great. So she begins with, by talking about her frustration of uh, having practiced for so long and practicing correctly, you know, doing what the Buddha says to do, not being lazy, not being proud, and she sees, you know, as a contrast, householders gaining wealth, and she doesn't understand why she still hasn't woken up. But her mindfulness is clearly very, very highly developed, as is her concentration. So uh, here again, it wasn't when she was meditating that she attained Nibbana. It was when she was washing her feet before going to bed, and then watching as she poured the water out and watching the water flowing downhill with a very concentrated, quiet mind. And then she says the mind settled. Uh, And one of the translations for the next line is though holding back a thoroughbred horse. And then very simply, taking a lamp, entering her hut to go to bed. And then looking to sleep, sitting down in the bed, and then she takes her needle and puts out the flame of her lamp, and there it is. And this is also a, a play on words because uh, nibbana also means to distinguish, especially to, to extinguish a, a fire or a flame. So she puts out the flame of her la- lamp and, and becomes an arahant. So some of the Terries attain liberation quickly. Some of them take a long time. And the path is different, of course, depending on the practitioner and her background. But the fruit is the same for everyone. So the Terigata also explores what needs to be done for awakening to occur and what holds people back. Uh, some of the Terries are, are depicted as already very highly advanced. And there's a, a story of another suba, uh, Jiva Kambavanika, which means suba of the uh, Jiva, Jiva Grove. And uh, there she is, um, also alone in the forest. So these were the early days. And this uh, guy comes along. And she's a beautiful young woman, even though she's dressed as a nun. And he falls in love with her. And he tries and he tries and he tries to seduce her. So um, instead of blaming him um, and uh, criticizing him for disturbing her, um, she's very firm, but she's also very compassionate. And she 
manages to bring him towards the Dharma um, and convince him of the error of his ways. I mean, she does tell him that it's not proper to try to seduce uh, a monastic. Um, and so that it's, it's rather a long poem and it, it goes on and on, but uh, in the end, um, he, he, she asks him uh, why he's so insistent and he says, oh, it's your eyes. And, he goes, and then he goes into these long phrases about how beautiful her eyes are. So what she does is she takes her fingers and pulls out one of her eyeballs and offers it to him and says, oh, you love my eyes? Here, here you go. <laughs> so it's pretty graphic. Um, but at that point, she, this was a really compassionate thing that she did because he saw really that, you know, it made no sense at all what he was doing. And he didn't want that eyeball that way. <laughs> you know, he was revulsed. Um, and, and he asks for forgiveness. Um, and she, and uh, she forgives him and then she goes to see the Buddha and there's a happy ending to the story because when she sees the Buddha, he sees that she's given her eye away and he restores her, her, her sight. So all ends well. But it, it's remarkable detachment from the body to tear your own eye out just to convince this guy not to rape you, you know. But that's a, that's a courageous nun. Um, so another another thing that's kind of interesting um, about the training practices that lead to liberation, and um, Gil mentions it in his uh, book on the Atakavaga, um, which is that it's very rare that specific training techniques are suggested or prescribed. Um, so rather than being given concrete instruction, the practitioner is encouraged to simply be like an awakened one. Uh, Gill says that uh, one trains by being what one is to become. And so with the goal of Nibbana, the essential practice is to incline the mind in the direction of Nibbana, namely towards very deep abiding peace. So, to attain peace, one lives peacefully. And by putting in practice um, non-harming, mindfulness, letting go. But, you know, this is pretty advanced practice. Before one can train by simply being what one is to become, there are fundamental practices that uh, need to be put in place. So we, we have poems that give us insight on what needs to be done for awakening to occur, traps that can lead us astray, and how we might address difficulties and challenges and hardships. Many of the poems highlight um, this sense of uh, some vega, of spiritual urgency, and persevering in the face of great difficulty. There are a lot of poems like that. Um, practicing restraint cultivating concentration and focusing on the experience at hand, like we heard from Patichara 
just being with this moment. This moment is the water running downhill after I've washed my feet. So their diverse accounts demonstrate that different practitioners face very different challenges along the path to full release. And so naturally the emphasis in their practice is going to vary. So there's many paths, but one fruit. So traditionally, a Buddhist practitioner first cultivates generosity and ethics. And on that basis, uh, he or she will then undertake meditation practices of mindfulness and concentration leading to insight. Uh, I'm okay, thank you. Hmm? Yeah? Hmm? Yes. Quite that article in the canon, many times what it says about the development of virtue, it says development of virtue which noble ones find pleasing. So it is in line with acting like the Buddha or acting like the Nafa. So, with the foundation of ethics and renunciation, meditation, uh, spiritual friends, and the support of a teacher, the practitioner's ongoing challenge is to ascertain what, for them, constitutes wise effort. So, um, a beautiful stock phrase um, in the Terigata that conveys that uh, sense of spiritual urgency is when they say, um, wash your feet quickly and sit down to one side. And um, here's, here's Mita Kali's poem. And uh, this is uh, K.R. Norman's translation um, about her sense of urgency. I have entered upon the wrong road I have come under the mastery of craving. My life is short. Old age and sickness are destroying it. There is no time for me to be careless before this body is broken. So um, from another perspective, what constitutes right effort also depends on which of the five hindrances might be active. Desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, agitation, doubt, So for someone who's lazy or unengaged, wise effort is to arouse energy and and, uh, apply more sustained effort. And here's a poem by Tisa, where uh, the Buddha enjoins her to train assiduously. Tisa, train yourself strictly. Don't let what can hold you back overwhelm you. When you are free from everything that holds you back, You can live in the world without depravities. So, as as we were saying before, while ardent effort and perseverance are necessary in many stages of practice, there comes a time when wise effort entails relaxation Mm -hmm. rather than exertion. And in fact, one of the ways that uh, Nibbana is described in the Terigata is as freedom from exertion, nibbana. So who 
So the question I wanted to ask was, because I work hard, <laughs> I work, and I love that if we were to wash our feet, I mean, I take long showers, <laughs> just everything is really in slow motion, and the thought of having to wash your feet fast so that you could then get, <laughs> but then what you just read is that we can relax. Yeah. That better to relax. Yeah. Yeah, if, if, you know, if your tendency is towards sloth and torpor, then you need to up the energy. If your tendency is towards being overactive and, you know, being too busy in your effort, yeah. then the wise effort is to yeah. chill a little bit. Uh, in, his, in the poem uh, of Dira, the Buddha instructs her to gain quenching, unsurpassed rest from exertion. Um, so, let's see. Let me look at that. I I made some suggestions uh, in my thesis about how wise effort might be applied in a path of practice. So, starting with letting go of afflictive states, such as struggle, or grief, or wild minds. And we have a lot of examples of poems in the Terigata about how the nun is struggling for many, many years before uh, she can quiet down. No peace in my heart, no control over my mind. And then we hear accounts of despair, as we did with Siha, who got to the point where she was so frustrated with her wild mind that she was ready to kill herself in the forest. Others um, are reacting to in, un, intensely unhappy marriages. And many uh, of the Terries were devastated by grief when their child or their children or their entire families died. And some of them were driven completely mad by the extent of their anguish. What's amazing to me is that even these women who were grappling with insanity eventually managed to let go of that afflictive state, let go of their pain, and attain complete freedom. Uh, we heard the poem of Ubiri, who um, was distraught following the death of her daughter, Jiva. She was screaming in the woods. And the Buddha points out the inevitability of death, suggesting that she's already cremated 84,000 daughters, and uh, the elements of her poem are also repeated in another one where um, Patachara, who was a great teacher, she had 500 disciples, and all 500 of her disciples had lost a child. And they repeated um, these elements. And so their teacher, Patachara, evokes uh, Samvega, challenging them by pointing out the inevitability of impermanence and the uselessness of grief, and then asking, what lamentation is there in that? Because impermanence is just the way things are. And with this, uh, all of her disciples, all mourning the loss of their children, they relinquished their grief that had tormented them so. They dropped it. So the 
poem goes, truly she has plucked out my dart, hard to see, nestling in my heart, who has dispelled my grief for my son. When I was overcome by grief, today I have plucked my dart out. I am without hunger, quenched. So we heard uh, Kisa Gotami's story about you know, her husband dying and then her two sons and then arriving home and finding her whole family dead. Um, and then the Buddha's kind words to her where he says, um, you've suffered, suffered immeasurable pain and you have shed tears for many thousands of births. And then she goes to the cemetery and she talks about her breakthrough and says, I attain the death free. I have realized quenching, which is Nibbana. I have looked at the doctrine as a mirror. I have my dart cut out, my burden laid down with the mind completely released. So in Kisa Gotami's case, her debilitating grief is her unbearable burden, but it's also the doorway to her awakening. Her dart is removed when she sees herself in the mirror of the Dharma and penetrates the truth of suffering. And there's another example of uh, Vasetti, whose grief uh, takes her into madness. Afflicted by grief for my son, with mind deranged, out of my senses, naked and with disheveled hair, I wandered here and there. I dwelt on rubbish heaps in the streets, in a cemetery and on highways. I wandered for three years, consigned to hunger and thirst. Then I saw the tamer of the untamed, the awakened one who has no fear in any quarter. Regaining my mind, I paid homage to him and sat down. Applying myself to the teacher's utterance, I realized the blissful state. All griefs have been cut out, eliminated, for I have comprehended the ground from which is the origin of griefs. Amazing story. Going mad after her child dies and then wandering th for three years, completely insane, naked, sleeping on rubbish heaps. And somehow when she sees the Buddha, she recognizes here is someone who has no fear. It was visible. And it was enough for her to um, request his teaching. And then she applies the teaching and she drops all of that, that grief and that insanity. So again, it's, it's, it was by thoroughly penetrating the origin of her grief. That's what she says at the end, for I have comprehended the ground from which is the origin of grief. So it's penetrating that, the origin of grief that brings her to the bliss of Nibbana. 
So it's, it, it's really amazing. There are multiple messages here that uh, recovering from intense grief is actually not only possible, but it can lead to liberation. And, um, and then we had stories of a wild mind. And as, as we mentioned before, these are um, much less emphasized in the poems of the monks. So the nuns are humble enough to talk about their difficulties with their wild minds. Um, so one named Sama, uh, she confides, 25 years have passed since I went forth. I am not aware of having tained, obtained peace of mind at any time. Remembering the teaching of the conqueror, I have obtained the annihilation of craving. I have done the Buddha's teaching. And then very similarly, an anonymous nun uh, also suffered from a wild mind for 25 years of dedicated practice. And she mentions that she was drenched with desire for sensual pleasures. That was what was keeping her mind so wild. So another of the um, conditions that the practitioner can puts in place is purifying the mind and stilling desires. And you may remember the, the poem in the Dhammapada where the Buddhist teaching is summarized as uh, doing no evil, engaging in what's skillful, and purifying the mind. But then the question arises, uh, purifying the mind of what? Um, so here's there's a, a path of practice that the foundation is ethics, the application of wise effort, and purifying the mind of greed, hatred, but also concepts and projections so that we can really see clearly, we can see things the way they are without always overlaying our own ideas about what's happening based on our perceptions. Yeah, yeah, that are conditioned from, from how we grew up. So here the training is described as simply seeing things as they are and not as we might like them to be. I am purified of self-referential concepts and preconceptions and judgments. So in the Terigata, there's um, the example of Dira, and she is instructed by the Buddha who says, know these for yourself, cessation, the stilling of projections, happiness. And then there's the, the former prostitute named Vimala, who articulates the freedom from concepts during her meditation. She says, today, head shaved, robed, alms wanderer, I, my same self, sit at the tree's foot, no thought. Mm -hmm. And another aspect of purifying the mind is the stilling of desires. Uh, both the anonymous nun that we heard uh, and Siha, the one who went into the forest with a rope, attribute their wild minds to obsession with sensual pleasures. So, um, as I think we've, we've heard today, abandoning 
one's attachment to sensual desire is one of the primary themes uh, in the Terigata. And uh, it's, it's a fundamental teaching of what we're called upon to do, which is to let go of all of our clinging, whatever the flavor of that clinging may be. And even, even Kema, who was uh, foremost in wisdom, so a, you know, a great teacher, uh, she too had to overcome her love of pleasure. Um, she recounts how abandoning her attachment to pleasure led not to diminished happiness, but to complete freedom from suffering. So her poem begins with an invitation from Mara to delight together in sensual pleasures. And uh, well we, we heard this before, pleasures of the senses are swords and stakes. Um, Fools who don't know things as they really are revere the mansions of the moon and tend the fire in the wood, thinking this is purity. But for myself, I honor the enlightened one, the best of all, and practicing his teaching, am completely freed from suffering. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a different translation. So typically, uh, when Mara comes along, the Terry says, pleasures of the senses are swords and stakes. What you call delight holds no thrill for me. Um, and we heard uh, Sujata's poem uh, when she was in her uh, pleasure garden and then uh, meets the Buddha and awakens to arahantship as a laywoman. So there are links among uh, attachments to the body, desire for sensual pleasure, and longing for existence. And these are um, the ties that need to be let go of in order to dwell in peace. Then another quality is courage, which we've seen uh, a lot in these poems. And in the poems where the Terry is challenged by Mara, she sees him for who he is, and this clear seeing is what defeats him. It's like, you know, the dragon, when you name the dragon, you know, he no longer uh, can harm you. Sure. So when it speaks about sensual pleasures, and, and, and like Steve had said, that there are more than just you know, one kind, but a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. So would it, I mean, for me, it feels like a sensual pleasure when you're like sitting at the ocean and the sun is so warm on you. Should we not want that? <laughs> I don't want to give that up. <laughs> I'm afraid we have to give up everything. <laughs> but it doesn't mean you can't go to the ocean and enjoy the sun, uh, you know, and the warmth. But, but. <laughs> don't be attached to it. Don't, don't grasp after it. And, you know, let it arise, let it pass away. And then use that as, a, as an example of how you might respond to an unpleasant situation. Let it arise, see it clearly, knowing that it's going to be impermanent, and don't don't hang on to it with all kinds of, uh, you know, stories and energy, and don't push it away with aversion. Just same way with with the sun at the beach, 
the unpleasant situation, you see it, you welcome it as your teacher, and you let it go. Take the, the mic. Because what are you going to do when the time does come, when there's no sunshine? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> which, which is an interesting point. There was um, someone was dying in the canyon, and he was starting to look for the Buddha. Just saying for the Buddha. But people um, are concerned with not only loss of their loved ones, but also loss of sensual pleasures. That's one of the things people are afraid of in dying. Losing the sensual pleasures. If you don't get over it, it's not going to be happy for you. Yeah, you know, and, and one of the, the asifas is the craving for existence. So, you know, when we find ourselves on our deathbeds and getting ready to go, you know, it's a good time to let go of craving for existence because it's, it's not going to come true. And then there can be, then there can be some peace with that. Do you want to say something more? I'm really just trying to learn. So when I'm at the ocean <laughs> and the sun is so warm and the birds are up there and maybe I'm looking for a whale, I'm just like so wholeheartedly 120,000% there. And I'm hearing I shouldn't be that strong. I don't know. No, if it, if that's an occasion for heightened mindfulness for you, uh, that sounds healthy, skillful. I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Only you can know. <laughs> yeah. One thing you got to remember about the canon. We talked about this earlier. Most of the canon, especially the Karigata, Karigata, they talk about nasty. And that's why we're talking about why there's such worthy respect. The level what's expected of them is so much more than lay people. Um, and then as a lay person, you have to decide how much you're going to titrate out to you. One of the things the Buddha was emphatic about with lay people is you don't break the precepts. If you break the precepts, you're going to get into trouble. So that, that's the definite line you don't cross. But everything else, you've got to figure out. you want to do five precepts? you want to do eight precepts? Um, you know, what, what do you want? Do you want to be vegetarian? How much do you want to take this? And it's up to you to decide and take ownership of your practice to figure out what you want to do. I mean, the other thing you got to look at is going to the beach. It's not like you're going to go out and cheat people. You know, it's, just, it's not really unwholesome in, in a way. you gotta, you got you to look at it where, where it's going to take you. And you know, there's also ways that we can uh, apply wisdom to knowing what's going to nourish us. And there's nothing wrong with doing things that nourish us. And sometimes going for a walk in the woods or enjoying the sun on the beach is just what we need uh, to be able to face something difficult or to settle down and not jump on thought trains when we're meditating. You know, we need to nourish our, our, our minds and bodies as well. And so it's, you know, it's up to each of us to know that, you know, what, 
what wise effort is in each moment. What's skillful here? What, what would be unskillful? So in, in talking about um, courage, uh, Mara comes to um, Upalavana, who is a great, great nun, um, and he tries to sow fear in her heart. And for her, um, wise effort took the form of a, a very active, fearless, determined stance. And um, so Mara says, Going up to a tree with well-flowered top, you stand there alone at the foot of the tree. You do not have a companion, child. Are you not afraid of rogues? He's thinking, of, no. And she replies, even if a hundred thousand rogues like you were to come together, I should not move a hair's breadth. I should not even shake. What will you alone do to me, Mara? So it's, it's, her, it's her determination and her steadfastness and her courage um, that, that really comes through. But sometimes in the, in the process of opening the heart, it, it does involve courage, but sometimes it also involves um, patience uh, and practice. Um, for example, the, the anonymous Terry who... Uh, practice for 25 years without a moment's peace. And then she says, uneasy at heart, steeped in longing for pleasure, I held out my arms and cried out as I entered the monastery. So a, a cry of despair like this can be when a practitioner reach, reaches rock bottom, but it can also be a, a courageous opening of the heart. So other skillful qualities are cultivating contentment, which helps us with concentration, and cultivating mindfulness, with, which helps us with uh, everything. So um, for those who are perhaps further along the path, um, wise effort is expressed uh, in the simple practice of contentment. For example, mutta, um, the Buddha says to her, with a free mind, in no debt, enjoy what has been given to you, this alms food. So simple as that, just have a free mind and here's your alms food and enjoy. Contentment. An another nun, Mita, says today, with a single meal each day, I have removed the fear in my heart. So, um, and, there, and there's another one that I loved of um, Sumana, who went forth as an old lady. So she um, became a nun at, a, at, a, at an older age. And the Buddha says to her, lie down happily, old lady, for your desire is stilled. And then um, another expressive image of contentment is that of Uttama, 
who sat in uh, jhana for seven days and then letting go of any self-conscious effort, she stretches out her feet uh, and realizes awakening. I heard what she said and sat cross-legged seven full days of joy. When on the eighth day I stretched my feet out, the great dark was torn apart. So I think I'll, um, I'll end here. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to make. A couple things. Um, I forget her name, uh, but there was just shown a movie here at IMC uh, about the teacher who taught down in Joshua Tree. Um, she died a couple years, two, three years ago. Sandy Boucher wrote a book about her. Uh, tip of my tongue, too. Uh, died of old age. Theravadan teacher. Uh, Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. You, you got it. Yeah. Ruth Dennison. Yeah. 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 So good. Okay. Ruth Dennison. Okay, so her place out in the middle of nowhere in Joshua Tree, and uh, one of the women who came to uh, stay there and study with her uh, had just been through a had had been through a horrific life, um, all kinds of disasters, and then she was crazy, and I forget the particulars of her insanity, but uh, I think she was homeless at one time, and I definitely remember that she'd been put into a locked facility. Um, and uh, uh, the people that they couldn't help, <laughs> they sent to Ruth Dennison, <laughs> and, and some of them she could help. And this person became completely lucid, and was there on camera describing all this without any uh, self-pity, or complaint whatsoever, as far as I could tell. Uh, so I'm reminded of uh, these stories about some of these nuns who had had been crazy. Yeah. It's it's uh, believable. Yeah, I'm very touched by that. Also, thank you for sharing that. Uh, it, it was very moving to yeah. see her in the movie. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to say is um, how uh, fresh and modern a lot of this material. Yeah. strikes me as being yeah. uh, the personalities and difficulties that people face, even though culture, technology, environment also completely different. Yeah. But the psychology um, uh, doesn't seem to have changed at all, and that's why this is so um, refreshing or uh, accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh much more so than a lot of early to mid-19th century fiction that I find impossible to wade through now. Yeah. Thank you. So I'm surprised that there weren't instances where um, these poems were used against women in, in a patriarchal society where they were either dismissed or you know held up to say these women are crazy any any instances of that that you saw no 
No, I think it's quite remarkable that these poems have even come down to us today. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's remarkable that um, in the culture of, of the time, the Buddha was able to create a monastic community that included women as well as men, whereas they were completely excluded from all religious endeavors uh, in, in the Vedic practices. And then that, you know, uh, they were able to become arahants, completely awakened. And that they, they were able to celebrate this with their, their own accounts of, you know, a little bit of taste of what their lives were like and, and what it was like that led them to awakening. But if you think that, you know, for 300 years, reciters continued uh, reciting these poems, so it must have been like at least six generations of reciters, um, probably more. And then, and then someone wrote them down, uh, and then they got anthologized, and they got edited, and they got put in the, in the canon. Uh, and even when the um, nun's order died out in the 11th century, um, they didn't remove this from, from the Pali canon. So it's, it's, uh, it's quite, quite wonderful that we actually have these poems today. Think of all, the, all these ancestors who have made it possible for us to, to share in these. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> They're here in the room with us. Yeah. Well, I thought I would, uh, we'd end today with another poetry reading. Um, so this is, starts on page 24. And the theme here is delight. So in, in some of the poems, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, delight was one of those conditions that is born of faith and that leads to joy, which then leads to tranquility and happiness and eventually samadhi. So it's, it's uh, one of these healthful conditions on the path to awakening. And in these poems, uh, sometimes they talk about uh, delight as, as a delight uh, in Nibbana or delight in friends or whatever. But sometimes they talk about the opposite. They talk about the non-delight of all the temptations and the non-delight of the sensual pleasures. And in some of the poems, you get both. You get, you get a sort of an interesting tension of the setup of non-delight uh, you know, and then the real delight. Um, so um, would you like to, uh, to read some of these? Who would like to start? Okay, the first is Mita. Her name means friend. Mita, having gone forth out of faith, delight in friends. By cultivating skillful qualities, attain safety from all bondage. So here the, the Buddha is making a play on words on her name. Her na he tells her, having gone forth out of faith, so that was the condition right after the wise response to suffering. He then tells her, delight in friends. It's almost like saying delight in yourself. <laughs> Would you like to read Abaya? Her name means fearless. 
Buddha says, Abhaya, the body to which common people cling, is fragile. With clear comprehension and awareness, discard this body. Abhaya says, I delight in attentiveness toward all, all suffering states. I have attained the destruction of craving and accomplished the Buddha's instruction. So this, this is really a, an interesting kind of delight. Delight in attentiveness. So that's like delight in mindfulness or delight in being present with what is. And in this specific case, it's the attentiveness towards all suffering states. So that's an interesting kind of delight. Attentiveness to all suffering states. It's like, like the being able to welcome each moment that arises no matter whether it's happiness or suffering. Delighting in paying attention to it. It's radical. <laughs> radical. <laughs> and very radical. Okay. Um. Now we have samma. And samma in Pali can mean a number of different things. It can mean golden or beautiful or peaceful. So again, there's a little bit of irony in this poem uh, about her name if it means peaceful. Four, five times I left my hut with no attainment of mental peace, with no control of my mind. On the eighth lunar night, craving was abolished. I delight in, att in attention toward all suffering states. I have attained the destruction of craving and accomplished the Buddha's instruction. So a very similar uh, last verse to the one we heard before. And this, this, sometimes they, um, the editors group the poems together uh, when they repeat each other. So this one, the, the one of Abaya was the second, uh, the two-verse poems, the second chapter, number nine, and then this one, which has the same verse at the end, it was number ten. So now let's hear... Nandutara. <clears throat> I venerated the fire, the moon, the sun, and the gods. At the river crossing, I ritually entered the water. I undertook many religious practices, shaved half my head, slept on the ground, and ate no food at night. Afflicted by desire and lust, I served my body, delighting in ornaments and jewelry with baths and massage. Then acquiring faith, I went forth into homelessness, having seen the body as it really is. Desire and lust were abolished. Severed all states of becoming, wishes and desires, Every bond is unbound. The mind has attained peace. So what's she delighting in? <laughs> Ornaments and jewelry. Baths and massage. So... That was before the, uh, she took up the Buddhist practice. 
and she was one of these um, sort of wandering samanas doing various uh, practices, ritually crossing the water, so that would have been a, a Brahmanistic thing, uh, practice. Uh, but she still was afflicted by desire and lust, and so she realizes that she hadn't given up uh, her delight in these worldly things of jewelry and massage, but then she acquired faith. And No, she she was she was saying that part of her practice in the beginning was venerating fire, venerating the moon, the sun, and the gods, at the river crossing, ritually entering the water, and then she says, "I undertook many practices, but afflicted by desire and lust, um, she was serving her body." Um, and then the the uh, the flip happens when she acquires faith and goes forth as a disciple of the Buddha. Sujata. Sujata. Adorned, well-dressed, wearing garlands, sprinkled with sandalwood powder, covered with ornaments, followed by a group of female slaves. Taking food and drink, foods of all kinds, and not covered. I left home and went to a pleasure grove. Having delighted in playing there, I headed back home. On the way, seeing a monastic dwelling, I entered the black woods of Sakera. I saw the light of the world. I bowed to him and sat down. Out of compassion, the one with eyes caught be the Dharma. Listening to the great sage, I fully penetrated the truth. With that, I touched the stainless Dharma and the state without death. I then knew the Dharma and went forth into homelessness. I attained the triple knowledge. Buddha's instructions was not futile. So we heard this one uh, before about this wealthy uh, laywoman who does nothing but indulge her sensual desires. But when she sees the Buddha, she's able to, to see that he's the light of the world. And when, he's, and when he teaches her, she listens and um, penetrates the truth. So I th at this point, she, um, when it says the stainless dharma, the state without death, it means that she's become an arahant, just like that, after just coming back from a party in a pleasure garden. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, he says, which would you rather have, your jewelry or freedom from suffering? Okay. <laughs> I love that the one with eyes 
Yes, that's a nice uh, epithet for the Buddha. So, Sizu Pachala. So, uh, these are, she's the daughter of Sariputta, and she and her two sisters, there's Chala, uh, Upachala, and Sizu Pachala, who are all in the Terigata uh, with poems um, one after the other. A bhikkhuni, thorough in virtue, with well-controlled faculties, attains the peaceful state, sublime and nourishing. Mara the challenger says, there are Yama gods, Namantarantina gods, Vasavatina gods, and gods of the Tava Simsa and Tusita heavens. Direct your mind there. You have lived there before. Sisa Pakala says, there are Yama gods, Namantaratina gods, Vasavatina gods, and gods of the Tava Timsa and Tusita heavens. Again and again, from existence to existence, these gods revere an existing self. Not passing beyond the attachment to an existing self, they wander on in birth and death. The whole world is ablaze. The whole world burns. The whole world is in flames. The whole world trembles. The Buddha taught me the unshakable, incomparable Dharma. While ordinary people do not follow it, I am committed to it. Hearing these words, I dwelt delighting in the instruction. I attained the triple knowledge and accomplished the Buddha's instruction. Everywhere delight was destroyed and the mass of darkness burst open. Know this, evil one, you are defeated, end maker. So here we have two kinds of delight in this poem. First she says that when she hears the words of the Buddha, she dwells delighting in the instruction. So this is delighting in the Dharma. And with delighting in the Dharma, she attains the triple knowledge and becomes an arahant. Then she mentions delight again, saying everywhere delight was destroyed and the mass of darkness burst open. So here this, you know, it's the, uh, the sensual desire is destroyed and ignorance is destroyed. And she uh, defeats Mara, who's trying to, uh, he's trying to convince her, apparently in, the, in a previous life, uh, she was in a god realm, in a deva realm, which is very pleasant, but not terribly conducive to awakening because it's too pleasant. And so Mara, whose job it is to try to knock you off the path, uh, says, you know, he says, oh, there's all these kinds of gods. Why don't, you, why don't you go back up there? Direct your mind there. You've lived there before. Mm. Don't, don't bother with uh, waking up down here on earth. Mm. Okay, now we have an excerpt, because this is a long poem, uh, by Sundari. Mm. Narrator says, the Brahman saw the Buddha who was fully freed without attachments. The sage who had passed beyond suffering taught him the Dharma. Mm. 
suffering, the arising of suffering, the disappearing of suffering, the noble eightfold path leading to the stilling of suffering. He knew right there the true Dharma and delighted in going forth. After three nights, Sujata attained the triple knowledge. So this is in a, in a complex poem with a nun named Sundari. And um, she's speaking to a, a, a Brahmin whose name is uh, Suja, Sujata. And so it's the Brahmin who um, the narrator tells the story of how the Brahmin woke up. And uh, so it begins with uh, seeing the Buddha and then understanding the Four Noble Truths. And then it's, the narrator says that the Brahman knew right there the true Dharma and delighted in going forth. And so there's a number of uh, poems in the Terigata where we hear about delighting in, in going forth, delighting in renunciation. Next, we have um, some excerpts from the poem by Supa, the smith's daughter, which uh, you read part of this morning. So let's see how she talks about delight. Started with, I heard the Dharma. I heard the Dharma, yeah. I heard the Dharma. I heard the Dharma when I was young and clean clothed. Vigilant, I penetrated the truths. I found great non-delight in all sensual desires. Seeing fear and self-identification, I longed for renunciation. Lust is endless danger, much suffering, a great poison, of little enjoyment, a maker of conflict, and withers up the good. Because with lust as, as a cause, I have created such misfortune, I will not return to it. Instead, I will delight in Nibbana. So she starts with non-delight, great non-delight, in all sensual desires. And then she sees fear and self-identification and longs for renunciation. And then understanding that lust has a cause, that she had created so much mis misfortune by going after lunch, she decides, she decides not to return to it and instead to delight in Nibbana. Okay, Sumedha. This is also a long poem, so these are uh, excerpts. Sumedha says, Listen, both of you, I delight in nirvana. Existence is not eternal. Even deities, far briefer, are hollow, sensual desires, providing little pleasure and much distress. Sensual desires are bitter like snake poison, with which fools become infatuated. They will be in hell for a long time, beaten and pained. 
Sumedha, speaking through the closed palace door, do not delight in sensual pleasures. Look upon the dangers of sensual pleasures. Mandata, king of the four continents, had no equal in enjoying sensual pleasures. Yet he died unsatisfied, his desires not fulfilled. Even if the seven kinds of jewels rain from the sky in all directions, sensual desire would not be satisfied. A person would die unsatisfied. As gods, we had a great magical power. How can we speak of the power we had as humans? Among the seven treasures of the great king, I was the woman's treasure. The first meeting was the core, the source, the root, for my acceptance of the teachings by the delight in the Dhamma. I attain nirvana. Those who have faith of the teachings of one with superior wisdom will become disenchanted with existence. In disenchantment, they will become free of lust. So, what do you make of this one? Hmm? Take the, take the. It, it, I don't understand the, the second part, but maybe I'm not thinking hard enough. As gods, we had great magical power. How can we speak of the power we had as humans? And then I was the woman treasure. And then that first meeting was the cause for my acceptance of the teachings. So again, she... Um, in a, in a former life, was in the Deva realm as a god and had great magical powers. And then the question she asks is, how can we speak, knowing that, how can we speak of power that we had as humans? And she says that she was one of the seven treasures of a great king. So the great kings are the wheel-turning monarchs, and they have seven treasures, like they have the horse treasure, which is this amazing horse that can fly off into the heavens. And then they have... Uh, you know, an elephant treasure, which can always carry them anywhere they want to go and conquer all their enemies. And they have, typically enough in the patriarchal society, a woman treasure who's like the, the, the perfect wife and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So she was a, a woman treasure. And it's not a, not a terribly great uh, status for even um, if you're a great king. It's, it's more like you're objectified and you're, you're an object, you know. Um, you're, you're a reflection of the glory of the wheel-turning monarch. And so with that, she says, that first meeting was the cause, the source, the root for my acceptance of the teaching. By the, this delight in the Dharma, I attained nirvana. So she too, see, she too delighted in the Dharma. And she talks about the power of faith. Any last thoughts before we meditate together? I'd like to thank you very much for coming today and participating.
it's been a real pleasure to um, explore these poems with you. Every time I read them, I, I, you know, I see something new and I learn something more. And so I, I've really enjoyed today. And I thank you very much for your rich reflections. Thank you for coming. <laughs> You're very welcome. My pleasure. Thank you.